You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. I'm Joseph Casco alongside Mark Nortz, and we're joined by Dr. Chris Bennett. He's an emergency room physician at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Uh, Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thank you for having me. So mostly we've been asking people to tell us their Winthrop story. What year did you graduate, and uh, how did you end up at Winthrop? Yeah, so I graduated from Winthrop in 2009, uh, started in 2005, straight through four years. Grew up in a very small area in South Carolina, a city called Chesterfield, South Carolina. Uh, when I was applying for colleges, I didn't really know what I was looking for. I came from a family where I was a first-generation college student, so I applied pretty broadly, went to a couple of interviews, and I remember my interview at Winthrop. An absolutely beautiful sunny morning, and we're walking down um, the front path in front of Tillman. Uh, from at that time, was one of the student halls, and the Winthrop ambassadors were lined up, and they had balloons, and they were so energetic and enthusiastic. And, and just from then on, the entire day, I just felt at home. And it wasn't really much of a question where I was going to go; it's a question of how I could get there. The rest just sort of happened. I was lucky enough to get accepted to Winthrop, and I spent four very meaningful years there. You know, it's funny. It's been a recurring theme with people that we've spoken to about how the first time they saw the campus and the beauty of the place really, really touched them. So that's something we've heard from people a lot. As a first-generation college student, what was that like for you not having the family background to, you know, a mom and dad that could provide some advice when when you're not sure how you're going to get all these papers written or all these exams done. Um, what was that like, and were there resources at Winthrop that were able to help you get through that? It was weird. I, um, I very vividly remember being dropped off by my parents, who had never really done this before, obviously, and had no context for it. And my first couple of days at Winthrop were really a pretty steep learning curve. Obviously, my roommate at the time and people in my hall, I was one of the honors. Uh, honors association students had a bit more of a feel for like what college life looked like. So I learned from them for a little bit. I think completely independent of no real resources or no real precedent for it, it was the, my co-student on the floor with me, the honors university program. Uh, they were really quite helpful, um, helping me figure out like what a path to success looked like. I think the faculty as well were just extremely important. I think the thing for me that really defined my Winthrop experience was just the openness of both the students and the faculty, and I think I was not really the exception as much as the expectation. Everyone was there to help me. Um, I didn't really know what to do and how to do it, but there was always someone who had experience and expertise in it, and it was always very easy to find out what needed to be done and how best to do it. Do you have a favorite Winthrop moment or a quintessential Winthrop story that you think really encompasses your time at the university? I do. I actually really do. And I think this is probably one that's shared by many, but it was my first convocation. Um, going in, hearing the organ, seeing the faculty come in and all of their regalia. And not, I mean, again, coming from an area with like no family history of going to college, you have just hundreds of people in a room, and then all of a sudden there's music playing and the faculty come in and they're wearing these brightly colored gowns. They're all very different, and it's just a very surreal experience. And then you finish, and you walk out on the front lawn over towards Tillman, and it just, you're lined uh, on both sides of the walkway by faculty who are 
you know, some of them are hugging you, some of them are giving you high fives. And it's just walking into this world that you never really knew what it looked like. You never really knew what to expect. And I think it's, I think if I had to think of a moment at Winthrop that I think about often and I think about fondly, it would be that. Just in looking at your, your bio, your resume, uh, I see that you majored in biology and chemistry at Winthrop. Uh, when you graduated in 2009, did you know that you would go on to medical school? Was that the plan? And if so, how did Winthrop help get you there? That's a good question. And, and no, it wasn't actually clear to me. I uh, was a, a cell biology researcher at the university in the Department of Biology with Dr. DeMaculingen at the time. And I actually, after graduating from Winthrop, was accepted into a PhD program at Duke. It wasn't until probably two, two and a half years into my PhD at Duke that I really became aware that my interest in um, in science were actually interested in medicine. I had more exposure to clinical medicine. I, I will say that the faculty in the department were very supportive and obviously initially supporting me to get into a PhD program and helping me do that. But I think when I had made the decision to transition from a PhD over to an MD, I think there was absolutely no reservations as well. And I think the department was, having been out of the university system for several years, they remembered who I was. We had obviously been in close contact for many years since graduation. Um, but without a doubt, they were very fundamental in coming together, helping me figure out what it looked like and helping me sort of navigate the process of medical school. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here, and we're speaking with Dr. Chris Bennett. He's an, an, an emergency room doctor at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. Uh, we just want to ask you, what's been your experience like as a doctor working in an emergency room during this pandemic? What, what have you seen? Um, what have things been like for you there? I think at least in Boston, we are one of the cities that has been hit, um, not to the level that you've seen in New York, but pretty, pretty bad in terms of the total number of cases as well as the total number of deaths. A lot of what I do in emergency medicine is trying to identify critical illness with very short, obviously, very limited information in very short periods of time. The, the current pandemic has made that a bit more difficult. I will say that at least initially, several weeks ago, we started seeing patients uh, who had viral symptoms consistent with pneumonias, but weren't really presenting the same way. Um, I think as the field, emergency medicine and medicine overall, began to learn more about the coronavirus and we started to see more of it and sort of telltale signs and symptoms and patterns of those, uh, we became more aware of it. I think weeks and weeks passed and we started noticing um, quite uh, quite sad, actually, but younger patients, patients without really any past medical history who would come into the emergency department quite sick, some of which who would require breathing tubes, some of which obviously would require admission to the ICU. The, the pandemic continues. We are now in the surge, or at least the plateau phase of the surge here in Boston. We still continue to see a number of very sick patients, a number of those are older individuals who have pre-existing medical conditions. Um, it's a very different type of medicine in a lot of ways. When we first started seeing the pandemic, it felt like there was a lot of volume drop. So a lot of the patients who would otherwise come to the emergency department didn't seem to come. So there was a little bit of um, calmness in the department. We don't say the word quiet in emergency medicine just because 
uh, superstition, but it just seemed like there were less patients. And over time, that changed. And it changed in that the only thing that we actually were seeing with COVID. Um, and right now, I mean, I just finished this shift this morning around 1 a.m. I went home with the bed, just getting up and getting out on my day. Um, but it's still just that we continue to see predominantly patients uh, who have COVID. The interactions with these patients are very different as well. I mean, you walk into a room, even if they've come in with a broken ankle, your concern always is, do they have a virus? Are they asymptomatic? And so there's a lot of barrier that goes into the interaction. You're wearing a gown, you're wearing a mask, you're wearing a shield, you're wearing an N95, you're a glove dub. And how you interact with the patient is so very different. It feels a little bit more removed. And I think that's very obvious both to myself and to the patient. And so the interactions we have feel a little less uh, real and a little more um, cautious, which does change, I think, the dynamic. It's a very scary time for a lot of us, both for our patients, both for the doctors and the nurses that I work with. Um, we're optimistic, obviously, but I think we're all very vigilant as well. So you hear a lot in the news reporting that the majority of these cases who res- that result in deaths are older people, people with weakened immune systems. But then every now and then you hear about an area that maybe there are a few more cases that don't fit that profile. What's been your experience there in Boston? D- do you see any patterns or anything that you can point to of that these are the people who are most at risk? I think I agree that at least for... For the most of cases, the people who are the sickest, the people who require breathing tubes and admissions to the ICU, I think these are patients who are older. Um, more often they are older. More often they have medical conditions, people who have asthma, lung disease, people who are chronic smokers, people who use oxygen, people who have histories of pneumonias. And their lungs are already not normal, and so an additional infection or an assault can make it very difficult for them to overcome it. Um, so I definitely think, at least from what I've seen, what I've seen from my colleagues and what we hear coming out of China and what we've heard coming out of Italy and what we see coming out of New York as well as what we saw in Seattle as well, it's pretty consistent with that. Um, I think from an epidemiologic standpoint, though, you're correct. There are a number of patients who come in who just don't fit the mold. And it doesn't have to be just the respiratory complaints associated with the coronavirus. I think we see um, that the virus obviously is primarily respiratory in many situations, but there are just a number of other things that patients are coming in with. Um, sometimes people come in with very weak hearts as a result of myocarditis, so inflammation, such as the point where the heart doesn't squeeze appropriately, which in and of itself is very life-threatening. At the same time, we're seeing presentations that could be consistent with meningitis and encephalitis. We're seeing patients coming in with gastrointestinal complaints, and then we're seeing patients who come in with absolutely no symptoms at all. And so... The the patterns, at least what we've seen from the older population, look pretty clear. But again, we don't know a lot about the virus, but there's more to be learned, more that we just don't know. And I think right now, although we have these patterns, there, there again continue to be people who just don't fit it. And I don't know if it's the exception to the rule or just different presentations that we just haven't quite learned enough about. How long do you think it might be? before we have a real clear understanding of what this coronavirus does, how it spreads? Uh, I guess what makes it so difficult is that this is a novel virus, correct? Correct. And I think in terms of the concept of novel, I think it's just 
I think it's pretty clear to us from a basic biology standpoint how the virus itself is able to infect um, infect us. I think it's also mostly clear to us how it's transmitted, the way in which it's transmitted, how long it can live on certain substances, and the precautionary measures we could and should take. I think one of the things that we need to learn more about, but I think we don't have enough information on how prevalent it is, Unfortunately, a lot of the testing that we have been able to do has been focused on patients who really just sound like they have COVID. In medicine, we have this sort of philosophy, if it looks like a duck, it sounds like a duck, it quacks like a duck, it likely is a duck. And the reason why I say that is if someone looks like they have COVID, they are coughing and wheezing and sound like they have COVID and all the signs point to COVID, then the confirmatory test is helpful for us. But at the end of the day, there are many different patients who may have mild symptoms or no symptoms at all that we truly have not been able to test, that we haven't tested, and that we're not going to be able to test that would really inform us how how the spectrum of COVID would look like. Um, and I think that would inform many different types, just from, from a public health standpoint on how best to prevent it, uh, from an epidemiologic standpoint, how actually you know common it is, like what's the actual incidence, what's the prevalence of COVID, um, I think that's where the biggest the biggest emphasis has been, at least for us in the basic sciences and clinical sciences and epidemiology are looking for more towards now. Um, treatment, obviously, is an area that continues to be very contentious, what to do and what not to do and how to do it. There's a lot of very interested parties looking at a lot of different therapeutics. There are mixed results. A lot of studies are very anecdotal and very small numbers of patients enrolled. So I think it's still a very early area with... Um, really no clear wonder drug, which I honestly don't think there will be for this. Um, but again, we have a lot of understanding of the basic biology, but I think in terms of what to do beyond that, it's still a lot of gray. Uh, I see a couple of stories from Boston area media about that maybe there may have been some COVID-19 cases that we didn't know about prior to March 1st. And I, I've seen similar reporting or similar stories from other places that um, I think in San Francisco, I had seen something about there were a couple of patients who were tested posthumously and, uh, you know, found out that they had passed away in early February and, and were positive for the virus. Just in your experience, did you see any people come into the emergency room, maybe even back as far as the end of last year? that had some kind of symptoms and, and maybe you weren't sure what it was yet? Do you, do you think the, that COVID-19 had been in the U.S. and around longer than maybe we have realized? That, that's actually a question that we're all asking ourselves. My colleagues in Seattle, my colleagues in San Francisco, my colleagues in New York are actually asking the same question both to their colleagues as well as their systems. Um, I say this with no authority, right? So obviously coming from a single physician working in an emergency department here, but there is concern that it has been here for a bit longer than I think we would or would have hoped it to have been. When we see a patient in the emergency department who has shortness of breath, who has cough, who is, you know, looks and sounds like they have a pneumonia, the first thing we do is get a chest x-ray. And so a chest x-ray can look very classic for a pneumonia, so a very sort of consolidated area on a chest x-ray consistent with a bacterial infection. Um, but in many situations, the chest x-ray can just be a little bit off. There can be some haziness in certain areas of the lungs that doesn't really fit a pattern. And in some of those situations, it can be consistent with an early 
bacterial pneumonia or any typical pneumonia or viral pneumonia. And in many of those situations, that can sort of be the end of what we do um, in terms of testing, per se. Obviously, CT scans, CAT scans are helpful for better clarification. But in people who otherwise don't look that sick or otherwise well compensated, they wouldn't necessarily get additional testing. And so I think we hear stories of people who had pretty profound respiratory illnesses but are otherwise healthy and didn't really think too much about it. And some of them are getting tested and it seems like some of them may have antibodies to COVID. Now, I don't know if, you know, that's part and parcel because they had an infection and that's the infection or maybe they were asymptomatic later and then they tested positive because of it. But I agree. I think a lot of us are concerned that the coronavirus has been here for a little bit more than I think we knew about. And just because of the relative ease of getting back and forth anywhere in the country, it makes it very much a feasible thing to have happened. Well, thank you. I appreciate you sharing your your experiences with us about that. Just to switch gears a little bit, you, you know, you mentioned about how scary a time this is. I, I can't imagine for yourself and your colleagues working in an emergency room during these times. Uh, one thing we've been talking to people a lot about is how they've been trying to escape from this and how they've what they've been doing to distract themselves. And one thing that seems to come up a lot is music. And certainly we've seen you know, that happened with social media, a number of artists sharing, you know, cell phone performances of, you know, some of their hit songs. Is there any music that you listen to to unwind, you know, something that you might recommend to us that we might add to our pandemic playlist as we're all stuck at home and, uh, and trying to muddle through this? Yeah, I think, so for context, it's currently cloudy it's raining i'm here in boston looking out a window as we're talking and it's you know been 30 and 40 degrees and back home obviously it seems like it's a bit warmer and a bit sunnier and so the thing for me that always has been grounded um has been music i think boyd jones many people may not know him many people may do was a huge uh huge personality in my life at one group and he instilled upon me a love of dolly parton and so I find myself more often than not going back to things that remind me of home, things that remind me of a bit more of a simple time. So if I had to add a song to your list, both from personal preference and in honor of boys, I'd probably add in Jolene from Dolly Parton. What an excellent choice. I, As we've asked people this question, we hear that uh, I've heard a lot of people mention music that really is outstanding and uh, and really speaks to you. So uh so very good choice. Dr. Bennett, thank you so much for your time. Um, you were really fabulous. Of course. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Chris Bennett. He's an emergency room physician at the Harvard Medical School in Boston. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day.
You're listening to the Eagle. Dolly Parton with Jolene here on Eagle Air Live. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here with you this evening. It's the Winthrop Day broadcast here at Eagle Air. If you'd like to get more information about how you can become a Winthrop Eagle, just go to our website, winthrop.edu. You can get in touch with the admissions office, 803-323-2191. You can email them at admissions at winthrop.edu. Dot edu. Check in with us. We'd like to hear where you're listening from. You can send us a request for your pandemic playlist. Just send us a message on Facebook or you can tweet at us. Hashtag pandemic playlist. There are a number of events coming up for admitted Winthrop students that you might want to know about beginning next week on Monday and running until May 14th. The academic departments at Winthrop will be hosting virtual information sessions to give you an idea of what it might be like to be a student here at Winthrop, what a classroom might be like. There are virtual lessons that you can join. April 30th, there will be a virtual roommate mixer hosted by Winthrop's Council of Student Leaders. On May 5th, there's two events, Real Talk with Parents at 5.30 and 7.30 in the evening. Also on May 5th, What to Expect in Your Freshman Year. May 11th, Getting Involved on Campus, and May 15th, Friday Final. So those are some events coming up. Of course, you can find out a lot more about this at our website, winthrop.edu. We're going to roll right along here. We've got some music off of my pandemic playlist. Of course, I have often talked about how one of my favorite bands is band called The Killers out of Las Vegas. One of their quintessential songs and absolutely on the pandemic playlist is coming up next here on WINR, Eagle Air.
You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco alongside Mark Nortz today. And now we're joined by the program director of the Special Education Intervention Program at Winthrop University, Brad Witzel. Brad, thanks so much for being with us today. Hey, I appreciate you guys inviting me. Awesome. So first, just tell us about, um, you know, the special education program and, and what students might expect if, uh, you know, they were to decide to join and, and, and major in that. Well, I, I, I came to here from the University of Florida because of the special education program. It was actually very well known. The, uh, the dean of the College of Education, when right before I came, actually had come on to the Today Show a couple times even and talked about his mission of trying to change the... Um, the opportunities for students identified with disabilities. So in our program, we have that same mindset. We're, we're not really looking at the problems, we're looking at the solutions. We're looking at not what the student can always do wrong, we're looking at what the student can do right. And gotta tell you, it's a, it's a refreshing change to how often children are viewed for what they can't do. But in the program, we've got a, we've got a lot of opportunities. So as early as their freshman year, our candidates get to go out and get to go into the field and work in the local schools where we have just these amazing teachers who, who guide them through what to do and how to do it. We get in heavy methods later on and full year internship by their senior year. That's for the undergrad program. For the grad program, it's all about training teachers to be special ed interventionists. And in that, they provide something that in education world we know is multi-tiered system of supports and they become interventionists through that. So tell us a little bit about some of the the tactics or some of the, the training that you provide students to, you know, things that they'll need to know to be able to go out and work with students with special needs. Well, sadly, first and foremost, we have to do some behavior. So we teach about something called positive behavior intervention support. And positive behavior intervention support is really trying to find out why a student's acting in a way that is unexpected to you. And then trying to find out what we can do with that why. So it's it's an odd start, but let's say a student comes to us and they're saying, oh, this kid has so many troubles in class and he's always yelling or he's hitting other children. Well, instead of us just going in there and start getting mad at the child, we actually try to observe and find out when is he hitting other children, when is he yelling and getting mad and why. And if we find out that actually in some cases the child's doing it to get out of work, as a high school teacher, I could recall several times where a kid knows he's about to walk into a test in third period, so in second period, he gets into trouble. That way, he gets to the principal's office and never has to go to the third period test. So what we do is we find out the reasons why, and then what do we do? We help him meet that why. So in other words, if he's trying to get out of that third period test, how do we help him get out of that in an appropriate manner without causing trouble in second period? So we first things we do is we, we teach that behavior. It's how to teach a child to get what they need and then slowly work on curbing that behavior so it's appropriate, right? But do it in the least invasive way as possible so the child doesn't cause harm to himself or others. Um, so we, we do a lot of behavior to start out with, and then we start doing a lot of academic intervention work. We work with other programs and departments about how best to teach reading, uh, finishing up a class now on how best to teach math. And today we just finished up with how to do al how to teach algebra two for students with identified disabilities. So, so again, we we do a ton of methods, and again, we work so much with the field and those mentor teachers. So, that's just a little brief overview for you. 
Well, it's a lot in your brief overview. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I guess what I'm kind of curious about is what type of of student would, would um, kind of gravitates towards uh, uh, this profession. Oh, sure. It's it's people like me, people like you. If the first group that always comes into our program, typically the first one to sign up, their junior year of high school, they know they want to go to Winthrop. It's the flagship for education in the state. And I want to become a special ed teacher. Why? Well, they end up having a family member or a friend or they did a buddy system in high school. But they started with familiarity. As students start coming to us through their sophomore years, what we learned is that they took part in another type of program. Maybe they went into a math and science or a literacy program or even an elementary ed program. And they went, man, I don't know. I kind of like the kids who struggle. I kind of like the challenge of turning around a kid's life. And then they come to they come to special ed and they realize that the majority of kids identified look and act like you and me. They just struggle academically. And then we find better ways to teach mm -hmm. them. So and, and one neat thing about our program is they walk out with elementary certification as well. So they can be a gen ed elementary school teacher in addition to being a special ed teacher. So so we have that wide overview. But again, they typically come in if they have familiarity and as they gain familiarity with other courses, they start going, man, I think I want to do that for a living. So that's how we built our program up. I noticed um, in your little bio here, it says uh, they work with high achieving students with disabilities, but it also says at risk concerns. Um, can you go into a little bit about what an at risk student is? Sure. There's, it, it's not always the easiest thing to talk about because behind the scenes, when you're looking at paperwork, there's all these at risk labels. And they deal with the income level of the family, the history of academic achievement of the family, and sadly, even some zip codes. We have certain areas where people live or just there's just a lot of low achievement. Well, the reasons why we call those at-risk concerns is even if a kid's identify with a disability in some of those categories, we really don't know if they had a disability or they just fall so far behind after a while that it looks like something bigger. So when I talk about high achieving, it's we found reasons to believe that a lot of our students who come to us and they identified with a disability, we can actually turn it around fairly quickly. I'll give you a scary, uh, scary statement here. The head of brain research in 1999, when defining what a learning disability was, they asked him and Reed Lyon, Dr. Reed Lyon did a, um, a, I think it was just like a forecast or type of uh, news report in L.A., and then during the interview, they said, so tell us about learning disabilities. And he says, well, what about it? And I said, well, you're finding some things to show that maybe there aren't learning disabilities. And he says, well, right now, and here's the quote, learning disabilities is a sociological sponge mopping up the ills in general education. Hmm. What he meant by that was every time that he had a kid as a neurologist, every time he had a child come to him with identified learning disabilities, he teaches them direct, explicit instruction using certain multimodal approaches that we do in our program. And suddenly they no longer have a learning disability. Their brain scans show that of a normal thinking child who's now just behind. So what we found is that a lot of times we have these kids identify with disabilities. They really don't have a disability. They just have gaps in their education. And we have to fill those gaps quickly. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco and Mark Nortz here this afternoon. And we're talking with Dr. Brad Witzel. He's the Special Education Program Coordinator at Winthrop. 
Dr. Witzel, a lot of uh, students and especially a lot of parents who might be listening today, one of the things they might want to know about is their job prospects, um, you know, majoring in your program. What kind of opportunities are there? Or what kind of need is there for teachers going into and interested in, in teaching special education? Like in North Carolina, South Carolina, is there a demand for people in that field? I, I'd, I'd love to tell you that, no, we're filled. There's so many people. Sadly, though, we get a lot of our students will be hired, well, unofficially by their junior year. A district will point them out and say what they want. Um, at this point, I do not have any students who have ever left our program who don't have a job. We get hired quickly. First, the need is huge. It is considered a high needs priority in the state of South Carolina and North Carolina. And sadly, every state that I work with, it is a high needs. Um, if so, in other words, if we've all heard about math being high needs, science being high needs, special ed's always been a higher need than any of those. There are very few special ed teachers. And it, it takes, a lot of people say it takes a special person. No, it takes a special skill set to be a good special ed teacher. So to, to acquire that skill set, we have a rigorous program for it. And I think a lot of districts know that. We just came back from a statewide conference right before this, this um, pandemic you know, was announced. And I think at the time, let me just count my fuzzy little head, I think I met with just walking down the hall, six or seven different districts, and they wanted to hire 10 of our graduates. Most of them were there, right? And they just walked down the hall and they said, we want to hire her, her and him. And I, so again, I'd love to tell you that we have so many special ed teachers. It's a hard job market but it's not at this point. It is, it's a very wide open job market and it has been for years. So our graduates get hired quickly, they get hired early and while they sustain jobs in the area too. So, If we switch gears a little bit, do you, do you have a favorite Winthrop story or a favorite Winthrop moment that you'd like to share with people? Man, yeah, there's too many small stories, right? If you talk about Winthrop globally for anybody has ever heard of Winthrop, our basketball seasons of, of years gone by. The, those were always the big moments where you got to see your, yourself on you know, national news. And what's fun about that is we focus on individual learning. We don't focus on sports. We're not a big sports school. We don't have a lot of times where we sit there and go, oh, we're a big football school. No, we're not. We're not trying to be one. We're trying to be a learner school. We're, we're all about focus on academics. So those are fun little moments. But I tell you, as a professor, though, I've gone to three different weddings in the last three years. I, my, my, my students who graduate from my undergrad come to my graduate program, and I love that because they bring such a, a unique skill set to carry to the next. When they, I've got two of my former students who become principals in the area. I've got another one becoming a superintendent. So I, I got tons of little moments just where you get to watch your former students grow well beyond where you are in your own career. So nothing fun, nothing nothing exciting, just watching people grow. Yeah, I find that's a recurring theme with some of the faculty members we've spoken to. And I know just Mark and I, when we talk about things that we've enjoyed over the years is, is when you see a student move on and, and achieve success and and do something fun. It, it's fun to stay in touch with students and, and hear those stories as they as they move on. So, and I think, um, yeah, and I think the personal nature of Winthrop, right? Where we connect so quickly with our students. We have many open office hours. Winthrop is as personable as you want it to be. 
And so for the students that reach out and want to connect, I mean, I, I can't tell you the number of times I walk through a school and some strangers give me a hug. <laughs> and I'm there, they go, oh my gosh, I know his name, I know his name, right? Because it's been 10 years. And it's, oh my God, it's Ryan. How are you doing, Ryan? And then you're hearing all the stories about what they're doing, how they're keeping up, what's going on in their life. It, it, you got it. That's, I, I really appreciate how personable Winthrop is. And for that, it makes my job a lot more exciting. Well, you know that um, Eagle Air is a is a music station, and um, of course, we're you know in these troubled times where we're spending a lot of time you know by ourselves or you know trying to self quarantine, and um, a lot of people are talking about what gets them through. So we've been asking the question, you know, do you have a pandemic playlist? Do you have some go to music? That, um, that pumps you up for the day or gets you through a trying time. Um, anything in particular that you're listening to right now? I love it. A pandemic playlist. No, I am not <laughs> That's hashtag pandemic playlist yeah. now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. That's on my to-do list. <laughs> yeah. I love it. Um, no, I think at times I, 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 I'm an oddball bird. I, I do like listening to some good classical music, some Tchaikovsky to get by, and every now and then. A little seal for some humming, because you really can't sing the seal. You think I have to hum to him. And then I'm old, so anytime in the 80s, let's say I watch a bad movie comes on, because right now, it's, it's, I can't turn on the TV at night. It's the same movie on replay, I swear. And then, of course, Adam Sandler has to make me hear 80s music. So, sadly, I got nothing that exciting to do to just memories. Well, very good. Um, Dr. Witzel, we really appreciate your time, and um, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. That was Dr. Brad Witzel, the Special Education Program Coordinator at Winthrop University. And you're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day.
It's the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz with you here today. And we're joined now by Matt Thrift. He's the news editor with the student newspaper, The Johnsonian. He's a mass com major and plans to graduate in December. Matt, thank you so much for being with us today. Hey, thank you so much for inviting me on. It's great to be here. You know, the other thing I should have added when I introduced you was you're now a member of Eagle Air. You have a show this semester. How's that been going for you? Oh, it's been a blast. Um, it was a pretty, pretty, uh, pretty short learning curve. And, and once I kind of got in there and, and pretty much kind of had free reign to, you know, talk about whatever I wanted and, and uh, I didn't talk too much. It was just kind of, you know, just kind of whatever came up, nothing political or sports or anything like that. It was mostly music. And then I'd kind of talk about uh, maybe things, you know, stories behind songs that I was playing or facts about the artists or, or you know, things of that nature. So it's, it's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to hopefully picking that back up uh, in August. Yeah. And one thing I appreciated is that I listened to the station a lot and, and I would listen to your show when I was on campus in my office. Cause you were on in the afternoons Thursday, I think it was right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you really turned me on to a few songs, which I can really appreciate. It's always fun when you, when you learn a new song or you you come across a new artist that you weren't familiar with. Oh, absolutely. I, I always get, uh, I still kind of get excited whenever I, I'm, I've been, I watched, uh, you know, you get a lot of free time, um, during the, you know, quarantine. And so I watched a couple of documentaries that, uh, Patagonia, the clothing company had put out on their YouTube channel. And, um, some of the, I got some new songs and artists from listening to there, you know, I'd watch all the way to the end of the credits to see who, who certain songs were by and, you know, pull it up on Spotify and, Add it to the uh, the nearly four hour long quarantine playlist I've got going. So it got some. It's always fun to me to find new artists and things that uh, you didn't know was out there. Yeah, we're calling that a pandemic playlist these days. So you'll have to share some of those those tracks with us. What uh, you got any recommendations for us? Is something we should be listening to during um, these difficult times? Pretty much anything Government Mule has ever put out is, um, I'm a big Government Mule fan. I've been listening to a lot of Widespread Panics uh, live albums because, you know, they record all their shows and they put a lot of them out. Um, I've been listening to, um, there's a band called Youth Group, and they they did a really good cover of Forever Young uh, that was... I think I've played that. I actually played that on the show a couple of times and, and it's a, that's a good one. Everyone should look that up forever young by youth group. That's, that's probably my go-to right now. Well, one thing we've been asking everybody is to tell and share their Winthrop story. Um, how'd you end up at Winthrop and what's your time been like here? So I guess to make a long story short, um, after I graduated high school, I went to York tech kind of on and off, just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And then I, uh, I went to USC uh, and did a year there and really enjoyed my time there. Loved USC, but, uh, Columbia is very expensive to live in. And, uh, and so I, I ended up, um, since my family lives, uh, up around York County, I ended up coming back up here. And, um, and so, yeah, enrolled at Winthrop and I've been there. My first year was, 20 it was a 2017 2018 school year and uh there's been a lot of good moments i mean there's been a lot of great opportunities working with the various uh aspects of um or programs within the mass comm department you know with the newspaper and 
um, the radio station and some other opportunities. And, you know, all the, some of the classes have been, have been very interesting. Um, I took, uh, I, when I took human experience, that the HMXP course, that was one of the best courses I've taken so far. I had a great, um, great instructor for that course and we had some really interesting readings. And, uh, so that, that's actually probably been my favorite course I've, uh, I've done at Winthrop so far. And then probably the best experience, it was kind of a way to explore different ideas. And then we had a lot of freedom to kind of, if there are things we were interested in to kind of explore those through the, um, criteria of the different assignments. So Matt, tell us a little bit about the Johnsonian. How'd you get involved? Um, I see a lot of your stories on the t- all the time online, even now that we're, you know, the campus is closed and you're not publishing a hard copy of the newspaper. I still see you doing some reporting for the mytjnow.com site. So tell us about your experience at the Johnsonian. So my second year at Winthrop, which is 2018-2019, uh, I'd been reading the newspaper since I, I came to Winthrop, and um, I just there were you know I, I don't want to say anything bad about the newspaper, but th- there were just certain things that um, you know in terms of like copy editing where I was like oh I would read it and I'm like I, I would catch these things and, and usually it was fairly minor, but uh, so I thought you know what. Uh, it's, it's enough of me kind of silently complaining to myself about it. So I'm just going to apply. So I went and applied to be a copy editor. And I think that was the end of 2017, 2018. So I think it was 2018, 2019 is when I actually started. Um, but anyways, so I started out as a copy editor and I did that last year and made some really great friends, people, some of them who have graduated, people I still stay in touch with today, um, I've seen since they graduated. And uh, so I made a lot of really good friends, had some good experiences, done some really cool interviews. So then I got, um, so at the end of last school year, I was just planning on being a copy editor again, because I thought all the editor positions were filled. And one of the editors from last year said, um, have you applied for news editor. And I said, well, no. And they said, oh, well, because they don't have one. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll apply. And I was like, I don't know if I'll actually get it, but I did and, and got the position. And uh, so it's been great. I've, I've covered a bond hearing um, for a criminal case that was going on and covered uh, different things happening with kind of some uh, tumultuous times, if you will, um, on campus. And some things that people were very upset about. And, and so it's, it's been a really good experience and, and I've really enjoyed that and, and uh, plan to go back and, and work for them next semester as well. in, in some capacity. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. Joseph Casco, Mark Nortz here, and we're speaking with Matt Thrift. He's a senior mass comm major. He's also a host here on Eagle Air and the news editor for the Johnsonian student newspaper. I, I know you mentioned a couple of stories there, but do you have a, a favorite story that you've covered over these last couple of years? Uh, my favorite story was one I did last year that I actually won an award for. It was on, it was kind of a, a dual purpose piece. I was covering a lecture that uh, a professor at Coastal Carolina did on um, women in the kind of Eastern Christianized Roman Empire under um, Constantine. 
and that was as part of the medieval studies week kind of tying in with with Winthrop's medieval studies program so I interviewed a few professors in the medieval studies program and then covered the event and uh, that was a that was a lot of fun I, I really enjoyed doing that article and it's still my favorite to uh, to this day well I should mention we've had a class together our uh uh, convergent journalism class, MCOM 330. And in there, we uh, do real stories and we post them to a website that we all maintain together called Palmetto Report. It's at palmettoreport.com. And I always, when I think of you, the story I always think about is when you covered the, the replica Vietnam Wall Memorial that was traveling the country and spent a weekend in Rock Hill. And that's one thing I've always really enjoyed about you is that you really have a solid news judgment and you know what makes a good story. And I remember when you pitched that, I thought, wow, this is super cool. And I remember driving home, I think it was Friday night from work and my mom calls me and she says, Oh, did you know about this wall? That's going to be the, you know, the replica Vietnam wall that's going to be in town. And I said, yeah, actually one of my students is going to cover that this weekend. And I, on the way home, I stopped because it was open, you know, 24 hours a day. And it was really cool. I mean, you you remember better because you covered it, but wasn't it three quarters the size of the real wall in D.C.? Isn't that right? Something like that? Uh, I believe it was three quarter scale replica, yes. I think that's one thing when you work in journalism, when you become a mass comm person, you really get these cool opportunities to see things, meet people, talk to people. You interviewed a number of veterans who were out there who were working as volunteers. So you really get to see some cool stuff when you, when you go into this line of work. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm always kind of blown away by the people I've, I've gotten to talk to. Talking to the people for that story was really cool. Um, and, you know, being out there and, and seeing people in that kind of element and, and obviously dealing with some very strong emotions. Um, and so, yeah, that that was a fun story. I, I maybe fun's not the right word for that one, but it was uh that was a good one to cover. I, I really really enjoyed that one. Got a lot out of it, and um, yeah, like I was saying, I mean, it's always crazy who you get to talk to. You know, you talk to veterans, you talk to um, family members of veterans who were over there, and for other stories, you know, I've talked to police officers and firefighters and, you know, deans of the various colleges, the university. And so you meet a wide array of, uh, of people doing this. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, even now I'll see people on campus who I've interviewed and, you know, they know who I am and, you know, we know each other by name. And, and so it's, it's a really cool thing. People who I never would have interacted with otherwise. So we probably have a number of students, who are maybe considering Winthrop listening today, maybe their families, if you could send one message to those folks, if they're on the fence and maybe not sure what to do, what, what would you tell them about Winthrop? I would tell them that it's, it's, it's really a great school. Uh, you know, my, my first year there was, you know, I mean, it's like any place it's, there's kind of a, an adjustment period. And so, but, you know, everybody, all the prof- most of the professors I've, I've dealt with have been very welcoming and have really gone above and beyond in trying to, to help. And that's one thing I really like about because it's a smaller school, you have smaller class sizes, whereas at USC, and I had some great professors there, but also, you know, you may be in a class with 70, 100 people. 
And so you just, you never really get to know the professor. They don't know who you are. And uh, so you don't really quite get that same level of interaction and, and the same kind of uh, help that you can get at Winthrop. And, and that's one of the biggest things for me. And, and also, you know, all the administration has, uh, has been great. Um, people have been, for the most part, very helpful. And, and that's one of those things that I think makes the difference between other schools. You know, some people, they like to go to big schools. And they want to blend in. They don't, they don't want to, you know, get to know professors or have that kind of close interaction. You know, everybody's different. But I, in my understanding, a lot of people like when you really know your professors, you know, they say hey to you on campus. Um, so that, that's probably the, the best, one of the best things I can say about the university. One last thing I should mention and say to you, congratulations, you were the MassCom Department's outstanding senior in journalism. Well done. Uh, what was your reaction when you heard about that? Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. That was, that was pretty, uh, that was pretty incredible. That, that was one of the biggest honors I've, I've ever received um, when uh, Dr. Real, who's the chair of the mass communication department, when he sent me the email that I, I had won and I just, I, I couldn't believe it. Um, it was, it, it was a very, very, very cool experience. Uh, you know, it's, it's not something I ever expected when I got involved with the Johnsonian, you know, I never would have imagined being named, uh, senior, you know, outstanding senior in journalism. And, uh, so I, it, you know, I, I know some other people who have been there and at least one other person who's had that. So I feel like I'm in some pretty good company. Matthew, thank you so much for your time with us today. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was great. That was Matthew Thrift. He's a senior MassCom major, and he's the news editor for the Johnsonian student newspaper. You're listening to the Eagle Air broadcast of Virtual Winthrop Day. You're listening to WINR Radio. Let's dance in style, let's dance for a while. Heaven can wait, we're only watching the skies. Hoping for the best, but expecting the worst Are you gonna drop the bomb or not?